If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to This Day in History class, a show to take with you on your journey through history because it's dangerous to go alone. I'm Gabe Luzier, and in this episode, we're looking at how a sword-swinging elf in a green cap and tunic became a video game icon and changed the course of the budding industry forever. The day was February 21st, 1986. The original Legend of Zelda video game was released in Japan, for the Famicom Disk System. Known in its native country as Zelda no Densetsu, the Hyrule Fantasy, the game became a breakout hit all over the world, launching what's now one of the most successful and beloved video game series of all time. The real-life story of The Legend of Zelda began with the childhood memories of the game's creator, renowned designer Shigeru Miyamoto. Born on November 16, 1952, Miyamoto grew up in the scenic Sunobi Prefecture of Kyoto. He spent much of his youth exploring the surrounding countryside, wandering the forests, descending into caves, and trekking through the mountains. Occasionally, he even stumbled across a forgotten shrine or the overgrown pathway to a hidden village. Those early life adventures stuck with Miyamoto, so two decades later, when he was looking to create a new kind of game for the Famicom Disk System, he decided to make one that would capture the same sense of thrill and wonder he had felt as a young explorer. There was one problem, though. Recreating the vast spaces he had traversed as a child was a tall order for the technology of the time. Nintendo's then-current hardware, the 8-bit cartridge-based Famicom, also known as the Nintendo Entertainment System, wasn't up to the challenge on its own. Luckily, the company was preparing to release a new add-on for its home console, 
the Famicom Disk System. Capable of reading floppy disks, the peripheral allowed designers to create bigger, longer games than those that could fit on a standard cartridge. This meant they could program more enemies, items, and bosses, more complex behaviors and backgrounds, and most importantly for Miyamoto, larger game worlds. The disc's memory could also be rewritten in real time, allowing players to save their progress and pick it up later. The save function would make its debut in The Legend of Zelda, but it quickly became an industry standard, replacing the need for the clunky password systems of old. During initial development, Miyamoto built a two-player prototype focused on level creation. One player would craft their own sprawling maze or dungeon, and once it was finished, a second player would explore their friend's creation. However, the designer quickly realized that the exploration was the most fun part, so he shifted focus and began building an expansive world for players to journey through. This new approach called for more narrative elements than Miyamoto had first envisioned. He teamed with co-director and writer Takashi Tezuka and came up with a fairy tale-like story inspired by medieval folklore and fantasy novels such as J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. The game's plot, which was only laid out in the manual, follows a young swordsman named Link as he embarks on an epic quest to repair the shattered Triforce of Wisdom and to rescue the kidnapped Princess Zelda from the clutches of the maniacal Ganon. If you've never played the game before, you'll be forgiven for assuming that Zelda was the game's protagonist. But while she does assume a more active role in later games, she doesn't factor all that strongly into the original, aside from the title. The name Zelda was chosen in reference to the famous novelist and painter Zelda Fitzgerald, who was also the wife of the writer F. Scott Fitzgerald. Apparently, Miyamoto and his team weren't all that familiar with her life or work, but they liked the sound of her name. As for the name of the actual protagonist, Miyamoto later explained that he was called Link because he serves as the connection, or Link, between the player and the game. To help Link achieve his goals, the player must guide him across the various deserts, plains, forests, and cemeteries, that make up the kingdom of Hyrule. Along the way, they have to face off against all manner of fearsome monsters, including the dog-like Moblins and the skeletal Stalfos, while also keeping an eye out for secret paths and hidden items. Remarkably, Miyamoto and Tezuka developed The Legend of Zelda and the original Super Mario Bros. simultaneously, and despite that overlapping timeline, the games couldn't be more different. Mario was straightforward and fast-paced, while Zelda was meant to be played more leisurely, with the player's progress directly tied to their patience and problem-solving ability. Much of the game's challenge stemmed from just how little information it provided up front. The story, instructions, and map are all confined to its manual, so if you started up the game without consulting it, as the vast majority of children did, it was really up to you to figure out where to go and what to do. And that was no easy task, considering that the game's overworld consisted of 128 different screens, not to mention several underground labyrinths complete with their own mazes of rooms, hidden treasures, and boss fights. Players who know all the tricks and secrets can now complete the game in just an hour or less, but for first-timers, it could easily take you 10 hours or even longer. 
Adding to the game's enormous sense of scale was its unique top-down perspective, which gave the player a bird's-eye view of Hyrule. And for a final touch of epic scene-setting, Nintendo's in-house composer, Koji Kondo, provided the game's stirring theme music. Take a listen. Miyamoto, Tezuka, and the rest of the design team put everything they had into The Legend of Zelda. The result was as grand and immersive an adventure as Miyamoto had imagined, a whole little world of mysteries, puzzles, and danger. But the bosses at Nintendo worried that the game might be too opaque for players used to simple, rapid-fire arcade games. In fact, during pre-release testing, Many players lost their way in the game's twisting dungeons and grew frustrated with the lack of a clear-cut objective. Still, Miyamoto refused to water down the difficulty, believing that the non-linear aspects of the game would encourage players to work together and share tips in order to make progress. That said, Miyamoto also had concerns about how the game would be received. As he later reflected, quote, a world of swords and magic really wasn't considered mainstream at the time. I really didn't expect the response I got. The Famicom disc system didn't prove very popular and was never released outside of Japan. But The Legend of Zelda was a different story. It was, by far, the add-on's strongest seller when it launched on February 21, 1986. The game was then re-released for the Famicom a year later on a cartridge that utilized a stronger memory chip and battery-powered RAM to make up for the reduced capacity. The American version of the game was released about six months after that, in August of 1987, this time sporting an eye-catching gold-colored cartridge to stand out from the standard gray. The Legend of Zelda went on to sell more than 7 million copies worldwide, and while many of its players did experience the frustration of getting lost on the world map, they also discovered the satisfaction of finding their way, eventually. In the decades since, Link, Zelda, and Ganon have returned for dozens of adventures on Nintendo consoles, from the Super Nintendo and the Game Boy, all the way to the Nintendo Switch, the 3DS, and whatever comes next. In that time, there have been many changes to the game's graphics and gameplay, including the shift to a 3D perspective and a stronger focus on puzzle solving. But through all the different takes on the series' tried-and-true formula, the core experience remains Miyamoto's boyhood inspiration, the joy of exploration, and the thrill of discovery. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about video game history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any feedback to share, feel free to pass it along by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.